It's so good, again, to be with, before you guys, <laughs> especially, uh, as you guys know, I am wrangling with a newborn, so, uh, you know, every night is an adventure. Uh, every night is sleepless, um, but uh, it's so fantastic, and what a joy to be with you guys, worshiping with you guys. Uh, as you guys know, last week we began a new series, um, and we're looking at uh, the Farewell Discourse, and the Farewell Discourse is a set of teachings that Jesus gives uh, to his disciples on the night of his arrest, right? And these are a set of truths and teachings that the disciples vitally need to hear, they vitally need to know if they are to persevere, if they are to hold on to the faith, because shortly Jesus will leave them and the storms will come and the trials will come. And so today we're going to look at, um, last week actually, let me just review. Last week, remember, we looked at the first teaching that Jesus gives. And the first thing he says is, he said that extraordinary and exclusive claim about himself. He said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. And we looked at how offensive that can be, right? That Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is the only salvation. There's There's nothing else outside of him. And yet, and yet... That exclusive truth claim is the most inclusive, the most embracing, the most humbling truth there is. And then today we're going to look at the second thing Jesus teaches, which is on the Holy Spirit. So turn with me to your bulletins, page 4. I have it printed for you on John chapter 14, and I'll read it for you, starting in verse 15. If you love me, so this is Jesus addressing his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, 
but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is the word of God. And so here's Jesus. The second thing that he uh, imparts to his disciples, the second thing that they vitally need to know is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is one of those topics in which you will get a range of, uh, of responses and understandings depending on the church you belong to, right? So at the one end of the spectrum, you have uh, charismatics. And charismatics are intensely interested in the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And I would argue uh, there is a tendency to, of an overemphasis an overemphasis on the scripture beyond uh, on the spirit beyond what scripture allows beyond what scripture warrants but at the other end of the spectrum you have uh, certain kinds of reformed churches and by reformed i mean you know churches that are calvinistic churches that hold to those classic reformation confessions and creeds and these reformed churches you know they love theology they love to teach right doctrine and the holy spirit it's, it's a kind of silence. You know, they're a little bit afraid to talk about the Spirit because it seems so experiential, so emotional. And, uh, you know, I am in the Reformed camp. You know, you guys received Reformed theology. And so, I confess that there is that tendency in me. So that, for example, this is probably the first time that most of you have heard me teach or preach on the Spirit. But that ought not to be, and I hope to remedy that because... When Jesus talks about the Spirit, it is an incredibly sweet and comforting truth. Because, you see, the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit, of walking with the Spirit. And when you have that, there's just incredible joy, there's incredible peace and love. And so we should want that, we should desire that. This is an incredible gift. And so we're going to talk about uh, the Spirit here in John 14. And this is by no means an exhaustive uh, examination. This is but a brief introduction, um, but it's a good place to start. So let's, let's uh, begin. Here's the outline. I'm going to ask uh, two very basic questions. So it's a simple outline. Number one, who is the Spirit? And then number two, what does the Spirit do? What is the ministry of the Spirit? So let's begin. Who is the Spirit? And the Spirit, and I've already sort of uh, given away uh, where I'm going by just asking the question, because I don't say, what is the Spirit? The Spirit is a person. The Spirit is not an impersonal force like what you might see in Star Wars. Uh, the Spirit is not some sort of you know, energy flow like uh, in the Chinese concept of qi. But the Spirit is a personal being. And because he's a personal being, we can have a relationship with the Spirit. The Spirit is a personal being, and we can have a relationship with him. Uh, we see that in verse 26 in our passage. Jesus says in the, in the third paragraph there that the Spirit will teach us things. This is only something that a person can do. There's this fascinating passage in Acts chapter 5, uh, the story of the early church. There's this married couple, An uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, they sell all of their belongings, right? They sell all of their property, and they give half of the money to the church, right? To the ministry of the church. But the thing is, they tell everyone that what they've given is everything, right? That they've sold, that, they, that all the money they've given to the church. And so Peter goes to Ananias and Sapphira, and he says to them, Do you believe that you have merely lied to men? 
that you have merely lied to me. No, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Right? You've lied to the Spirit. So the Spirit can be lied to. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews 10.29 says that you can outrage the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, you can grieve the Spirit. You can bring sorrow upon the Spirit. Romans 15.30, the Spirit loves the people of God. So the Spirit loves, the Spirit can be saddened, the Spirit can be enraged. All of these passages describe the complex emotional life of the Spirit that only a personal being can have. And because the Spirit is a person, we can have a relationship with the Spirit. And that is vitally important. But the second thing we see in the passage is that the Spirit is not only a person, but the Spirit is God. Right? And we see that in verse uh, 16. Jesus says... There, at the very beginning, I will give you another helper. I will give you another helper. Now, uh, the word helper uh, is interesting, fascinating. We'll look at that uh, a bit later. But I want you to focus on that first word, another. And in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, there are two ways that you can say another. You can say the word hetero, which means another of a different kind. right? So, for example, heterosexual means you're interested in the opposite gender, right? Your opposite sex. And then there's the Greek word alon, which means another of the same kind. And when Jesus says, I will send you another helper, he uses the word alon, which means, what is he saying? He's saying, someone else just like me is coming. Someone else just like me. And know that Jesus made extraordinary claims about himself. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Right? Abraham lived 2,000 years before, but before he was even born, I existed. And then he invokes a divine name. He says, I am. What is Jesus telling us? He is telling us he is divine, that he is God. In John chapter 14, last week we looked at it, Jesus said, the Father and I are one, so that when you see me, you have seen the Father. When you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Jesus made the claim that he is God, and therefore what Jesus is telling us is that the Spirit is also God. And that's why uh, at the end of Matthew, in the Great Commission, do you remember what Jesus says? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. He's equating them. Because if that was not the case, if the Spirit was not God, then that statement to baptize in the name of the Spirit would be not only inappropriate, but it would be blasphemous. And here we arrive to the very um, deep and mysterious doctrine of the, Holy, of the, of the Trinity. All right? And so we're going to go into the Trinity a little bit because this passage goes into it. So are you, are you guys ready? Are you going to follow me? Um, you know, strap on your belts, all right? Get ready. All right? So here's the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one God. There are no other gods than the God of the Bible. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is no other gods but God, and yet at the very same time in the oneness of God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these are not three different names of God. These are not three different uh, masks that God puts on, as if you know God is... The Father in the Old Testament, now He's the Son in the New Testament, and now He's the Holy Spirit. No, each of the persons are distinct and unique, and yet 
They are so one. They are so united that they all partake of the divine nature so that we can say they are one God. It's not that there are three gods, but that there is one God. Got that? And we see that in this passage, right? Jesus says, at the very beginning, he says, I am going away. But then virtually in the same breath, he says, in verse 17, I am coming to you. Right? And then he combines those two statements in verse 28. Look with me in, verse, uh, at the, uh, um, in the middle, in the last paragraph. He says, um, I am going away and I am coming to you. And you're saying, wait a minute, Jesus. Get your story straight. Which one is it? Are you coming or going? And Jesus is saying, listen, listen. I am going away and I am sending you the Spirit, but the Spirit and I are so one that when the Spirit comes, I will come. Does that make sense? And he is not saying that I am coming back in the form of the Spirit, as if he's some sort of ghost haunting his disciples, right? He's, he's not saying, I'm going to die and go away, but then I will haunt you again as a Spirit. No, Jesus Christ and the Spirit are, are, they're not so distinct that he isn't actually coming. Yet at the very same time, they are not so identical that Jesus isn't actually coming. Right? He isn't actually saying, you know, I'm going away and therefore I am not coming because how can I be in two places at the same time? I'm going away and only the Spirit is coming. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm going away and through the Spirit I am coming. And some of you are scratching your heads right now. And you're saying, can you run that by me again? And if you are confused, that is because, to some degree, you are supposed to be confused. The doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God, is an incredible mystery. God is a profound being. How can we as mere mortals ever penetrate into the being of God? Never. God is higher than we are. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And therefore, we praise God for that, that we can never understand Him completely. Even when we are in the new creation and we are walking with Him, He will always be a mystery to us. And yet, and yet, at the same time, God is not so shrouded in absolute mystery that we cannot truly know Him, even in a limited way. And that's why God... And that's why Jesus shares with us this teaching of the Holy Spirit. Because what he is saying is, when you have the Spirit, you will have me. Right? And that's an incredible comfort. Because you see, the disciples are afraid. What is going to happen when Jesus goes away? But Jesus says, I'm leaving and you ought to rejoice. You ought to be so happy because when I go, the Spirit will come and you will have me forever. You won't lose me. And that's so sweet to us, and that's so comforting to us to know that we have Jesus. So, here's the summary of the first point. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is a divine person who is distinct from Jesus, and yet is so one with Jesus that when we have the Spirit, we have Jesus. We have Jesus. Isn't that amazing? All right, so that's the first point. The second point then is, uh, what does the Spirit do? And here, uh, we're going to break it up into two parts. 
And again, this is by no means an exhaustive look uh, at everything that the Spirit does, but this is what we see in our text. He does two things. Number one, he's the Spirit of holiness, and number two, he's the Spirit of peace. So, first part, he's the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit imparts to the people of God holiness and godliness. Look with me to verse 15 at the very beginning. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he says the same thing in verse 21, and then the same thing yet again in verse 23. And at first blush, as you read through the passage, it seems almost like these random utterances, right? You know, here's Jesus talking about the Spirit, and all of a sudden he's saying, talking about obedience. But if you truly understand the passage, you will realize that a life of obedience is central to what the Holy Spirit does, to his mission. And so how does the Holy Spirit enable us to obey? And the answer is through relationship. Through relationship. Because when we have the Spirit, we have Jesus. That's why in verse 17, uh, there in the first paragraph, when Jesus says, the Spirit will dwell with you and will be with you. What is he saying? He's saying, I will dwell with you. I will be with you. I will live with you. And then that's why uh, in verse um, 23, Jesus says, I will make my home in you and with you. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus is saying that he will be our constant companion, that he will be with us wherever we go. In whatever situation, he, imagine him living with you. And if we were constantly aware of that, if, if that was on the tip of our consciousness, moment by moment, day by day, wouldn't that change us? Wouldn't that transform us? Wouldn't that change the way you watch TV? The way you talk with your family members? The way you conduct yourself at work? The way you spend your private moments when you think no one else can hear your thoughts, but Jesus is there. And you see, that's how relationships work, right? We've all experienced this. Uh, when, you've had a good, when you have a good friend, you know, when you've had a romantic relationship, the deeper that friendship the more entwined that romantic relationship, the more it changes you. You know, at first, you begin to adopt uh, that person's mannerisms, right? You begin to talk like that person. You begin to act like the person. You begin to dress like that person. But over time, you begin to think like that person. You begin to believe what that person believes. You begin to share that person's values. Uh, when I was in college is when I met my wife, Christina, and we started to date. And uh, it may come as a shock to you, uh, maybe not, that uh, my, I, was, I kind of had a reputation for being an insensitive jerk uh, back when I was in college. Um, and uh, I was one of those people who would say all, you know, just I was kind of a blunt person, and I didn't really think about the other person's feelings. Uh, and I would constantly step on people's toes, constantly say rude things, um, and I just want to say, uh, as an aside, just to interrupt my story, that uh, no doubt I still do this. And no doubt to so many of you, I've stepped on your toes. I've said uh, incredibly rude things. Sometimes I don't even know. And I wish I could take it back. I, and I want to say to you that I'm so sorry. Um, but going back to the story. So... Uh, uh, so when Christina was dating, I know it's amazing that she dated me. Um, so we would go to these social events together, and uh, she would just be horrified, right? And afterwards, she would say to me, Michael, 
Do you know what you just said to your friend? Do you know what you just did to that girl? You completely embarrassed her. You completely uh, stepped on that person's feelings. And, you know, a lot, and I, at first I would say, really? And, and then my other response would be, oh, it's okay. It's no problem. They, should, they, they can get over it. But over time, I began to understand the way Christina sees it. You know, that I should really care about how other people feel. You know, I shouldn't force them to conform to the way I think. And over time, you know, I became so much more sensitive. I mean, the person I am now, before, uh, compared to the person I was before I met Christina, is so, I feel like such a sensitive person now, you know, in comparison. Why? Because Christina changed me. All relationships, to the degree that that relationship is deep and intertwined, will change you, will make you a different person. You see, that's why it makes all the difference in the world that the Holy Spirit is a person and not an impersonal force or some kind of electrical charge like what we see, for example, in Star Wars, right? You know that first movie, Star Wars, A New Hope? There's young Luke Skywalker, and he's being trained uh, by Obi-Wan Kenobi. And you know Obi-Wan Kenobi is a Jedi Knight. And what makes the Jedi Knights so amazing and so powerful is why? Because they are strong with the Force, right? And what is the Force? The Force is some kind of galactic, energy field thing, right? And if you can tap into the force, if you can use the force, you can jump higher, move faster, you can manipulate objects from a distance, right? You have this incredible power and ability. But if you watch the movie later on, you realize that the spirit, I mean, not the spirit, the force, the force, um, because he's not a person, he doesn't, it doesn't really care whether you use it for good or bad. And so that there is a dark side of the Force, right? So that we later discover Darth Vader is also strong with the Force, but he uses it for evil. Luke Skywalker uses it for good, but what does it matter? They both use the Force. But you see, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, and therefore you have a relationship with that person. And therefore, you will experience transformation. Now, how does the Holy Spirit communicate the person of Jesus, right? The personal presence of Jesus in your life, right? Because you're walking with Jesus, you're, you're living with Jesus. Jesus says in verse 26, he says, The Holy Spirit will teach you all things, and he will bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. You see, there will be moments in your life when you're faced with decisions. Or maybe you're just going about your daily life, and the Holy Spirit, when you have Him, He will speak to your heart, and He will bring to mind all that Jesus said and all that He did in the Bible. And of course, that presumes that you're actually reading the Bible, right? Because if you're not reading the Bible, how can the Holy Spirit bring to memory, your memory, what Jesus said? But the Holy Spirit, more than that, more than just bringing to your memory what Jesus said and what He did, the Holy Spirit will communicate the presence of Jesus so that, for example, for myself, there have been moments when I pray, when I, um, I'm just, you know, maybe taking a walk and thinking about the gospel and thinking about uh, my life and the difficulties of my life. And there are just these sweet moments. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are just these moments when I know that Jesus is with me. 
you know, that I know I could feel his love, that he is living with me. And I know that sounds mysterious, and I know that sounds non-cerebral, but listen, the whole, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He communicates the presence of Jesus in your life as you appeal to the disciplines of grace. Right? So as you're extending mercy, maybe as you're suffering, maybe um, even now in our worship service, you can know Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the first thing, right? That to live constantly before the presence of God will absolutely change us. That's the first thing the Spirit does. The second thing that Spirit does is He imparts peace. And look with me to verse 27. Very important verse, verse there in the, uh, in the final third paragraph, uh, fourth paragraph. There in the middle, Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What is Jesus talking about? You see, he knows that in just a few hours, his disciples will abandon him for dead and betray him. And he knows that afterwards, his disciples will feel their hearts will accuse them and condemn them. And Jesus says that the Spirit will give you peace because the Spirit, Jesus says, will calm their hearts. So that's the second thing the Spirit does. He will calm our hearts. He will quiet our fears. He will assure us of the love of God. And so how does the Spirit do this? Well, look with me to verse 16. Jesus says, the Spirit... Jesus says, I will send another helper, right? So we've looked at the word another. Uh, what does the word helper mean? And uh, that word helper is actually a very difficult word to translate. If you consult different translations, it's rendered uh, all kinds of different ways. So some translations say counselor. Some translations say comforter, encourager, advocate. Why? Because the thing is, the original Greek word there, paraclete, is so rich and so complex that there is no single English equivalent word, Okay. And so the word paraclete, in a very uh, narrow technical sense, is a legal advocate, right? It's a courtroom word. It's a legal counselor. But the thing is, and this is why translations don't actually use the word, is that we often think of a lawyer, right? But the paraclete in the ancient world was not some stranger that you hired who happened to have specialized legal knowledge. But in the ancient world, the paraclete was your close friend, who knew you well, and he would stand with you in your defense. And so that's what a paraclete is. That is what a helper is. And so how is the Holy Spirit a helper? And the key is to realize that Jesus says, I will send you another helper, another paraclete. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am an advocate and the Holy Spirit is another advocate. I am a paraclete, and the Holy Spirit is another paraclete. All right, so that's the key. To understand the advocacy of the Spirit, is we have to understand the advocacy of Christ. So how, how is Christ our advocate? And uh, the Gospel writer John uses that word paraclete. By the way, he's the only one who uses it in the, in the New Testament. And he uses it four separate times, three times in the Gospel of John to refer to the Holy Spirit, and one time in the Epistle of 1 John to refer to Jesus Christ. And so that's the passage we're going to look at. That's absolutely key to unlocking what it means when Jesus says the Spirit is an advocate. Um, and I'll read to you from 1 John chapter 2. Uh, it says, uh, 
my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may, know, you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Right? So Jesus Christ is our advocate, and he is the advocate with the Father. So this is how it works. When we sin, there is a heavenly court to which we are accountable to. And we are the accused, and the charges laid against us is our sin and our rebellion. And so how is Christ our advocate? How does he plead our case? For so many of us, we imagine it this way. Christ is up there in heaven, and he is saying, I stand before you, Father, in defense of Michael. And there's Michael. Yes, he... Um, yeah, can, uh, can we... Um, there's Michael Uh, yes he's fallen into his old sinful habits yes he's holding on to his old idols but father stay your justice because look at all the good things that he's done look at how good he is to charity look at what a loyal friend Michael is and not only that father but look at his tears look at how sorrowful he is would you not give him a second chance? Give him a second chance, Father. And the Father says, okay. And for so many of us, we think that's enough, that we take comfort in that advocacy of Christ. But listen, what happens when we slip up again, right? How long can Christ continue to plead our case before the Father says, enough? I've had it with Michael. He's crossed me one too many times. Justice demands a verdict, and down come his wrath, and then I'm squashed. Is that the advocacy of Christ? Absolutely not. What does the text say? The text says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know that's a big word, and here's what propitiation means very simply. It means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, and the justice of God. You see, when we sin, there is a penalty to our sins. There is a cost to our sins, which is death. And Christ paid that penalty on the cross. And so when Christ goes before the Father as our advocate, He doesn't say, look at all the good things Michael has done. You know, look at all uh, the nice things that he's done to balance the scales. No, He says, Father, Look at what I did on the cross on his behalf. Look at the fact that I lived the life he should have lived, and then I died the death he should have died, and therefore, Father, forgive him. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is not that we get a second chance. And I hear that so often. People say the gospel is a second chance, but do we even want a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance only to mess up again and again? Absolutely not. That's no hope, that's no comfort to us. But rather, the gospel is that God is not laying aside his justice. He's not winking at justice. He's not saying, you know what, for Michael, I won't remember the rules. I'll just let him in. No. The gospel is justice demands forgiveness. Justice demands that he accept me because Jesus died in my place. The gospel 
is substitution. Do you see? Christ's advocacy means that Jesus stood in our place. And because of his record, because of his righteousness, we're forgiven. And so therefore, it's finished. Listen to me. There, it's so hard for us to believe this. But if you believe the gospel, if you understand the advocacy of Christ, there is nothing good that we can do to make the Father love us any more than he already does in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you know that? If the gospel is true, there is nothing bad that we can do to make the Father love us any less than he already does in Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is that when the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect record of Jesus and he loves us as a son. And when we sin, he's not looking for us to balance the scales. He's not looking for us to cry so many tears and get a second chance but he is looking at Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And when we see that, we can rest. And so that's the advocacy of Christ. So then what's the advocacy of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Spirit takes the advocacy of Christ and applies it to our hearts, right? The Spirit takes the gospel, which for so many of us is just an intellectual reality, for so many of us, it's just something that we say with our words. It's something that maybe we could write down on a, on a test. But we don't really believe it. We don't really feel it. And the Spirit makes it real to us. You know? I remember uh, before uh, Judah was born, um, I heard stories that, oh, it's difficult to have a baby, right? Sleepless nights. Oh, you'll have trouble. And I knew intellectually, yes, yes, mm. I can handle it. But it's one thing to know with your mind. It's another thing, I promise you this, it's another thing to experience it with your heart, and with your soul, and your whole being. And what the Holy Spirit does is He takes the advocacy of Christ, He takes the gospel, which you might know only with your mind, and He applies it to your heart so that you know it. You feel it. You experience it. So that when you're tempted to balance the scales, when you're tempted to despair, the Holy Spirit says, don't do that. Look at Christ. Gaze upon his death on the cross for you and be at peace. Know the assurance of God. You see, the reason why Christians, so many of us struggle in our lives, right? So many of us are filled with restlessness. We're so unhappy. We feel so condemned. is because of this thing that we don't truly believe the gospel. I want to close with this uh, story. Uh, several months ago, I was listening to this radio show uh, called This American Life. And I love that show, right? Because basically, it's, base, uh, it's these human interest stories uh, where basically people just you know, talk about a fascinating story in their life. And uh, in this one uh, show, this young man came on and he was a broker at a mortgage finance company. And uh, he would tell his story that uh, he, all the time when he was filling out applications and doing whatever he was doing, he would cut corners, he would lie to the people he was uh, 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 working for, you know, in the, the loan applicant, application people. He would do all these shady things. And he knew what he was doing was wrong. He felt terrible about it. But he said, my bosses constantly pressured me to do these things because the company was completely based on fraud and deception. Right? 
And so this was the height of the real estate boom. And eventually the, the financial crisis hit and the company collapsed and he was laid off. And then years later he said that he felt this incredible sense of guilt. You know, he would beat himself up, he says, because I realized that I sold out. I compromised my integrity. I didn't have the moral courage to say to my bosses, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing. I don't care if you fire me. He never stood up for what is right and true, but he just went along because of his greed. And so he felt awful. And so he came to this point where he realized that all of this ill-gotten wealth, he needs to make amends. And so he started to give a lot of money away to various charities. He, 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 get, he gave his money away to people um, to help them out of their mortgage uh, situations. And then he even went onto this radio show to talk about his role in the whole crisis and, and what he did wrong, was wrong, you know, that he fessed up. And I'll never forget, at the very end of the show, Ira Glass, who's the host of the show, said to the young man, he said, um, so, do you have peace? Uh, have you come to terms with what you've done? And the young man paused, and in really a stunning moment of honesty, he said, you know what? I still have this gnawing sense of guilt, and I can't help but to feel no peace. I still, don't, I still don't feel any peace about it. You see, the world says, when you have done wrong, when you've done evil things, the way you gain peace is you balance the scales, you do good things, and you make up for it. But Jesus says in verse 27, the peace that I give you is not the peace that the world has to offer, but my peace is that I will send the Holy Spirit and He will speak to your hearts and He will communicate to your hearts the gospel that I paid the price that you should have paid and therefore you can have peace and therefore you can know that you're accepted by the Father. I want to close um, by reading a passage from uh, Romans 8. And the Romans 8 is really kind of a parallel passage to this whole uh, uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit. And uh, yeah, let's put it up. And uh, let me read it to you. It's really a fantastic passage. Paul wrote this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with, with groanings too deep for words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding, and we can say advocating for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall tribulation or distress 
or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the gospel that the Spirit speaks to our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. And Lord, we know that when we have the Spirit, we have you. That we haven't lost you, that you're with us. And Lord, we pray that we would be full of the Spirit, that we would walk with the Spirit, and that we would know the gospel in our hearts so that we're not constantly running around so desperate to make up for our evil deeds, so desperate um, to make up for our sins, but that we would have peace. Holy Spirit, give us peace. Speak to us even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.